Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder that has done it so many times that I kind of got, got dizzy when I heard the number of companies that he has founded, he has, you know, ran, he has sold, he has IPO'd. I mean, he's IPO'd two companies, you know, one that, uh, you know, the peak was, it, it was like about 16 billion. The other one was about 5 billion, 5.5 billion. But again, you know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing. We're going to be talking about how you go about building a successful and winning team, how to have the courage to change directions. And we all know about the pivoting and how that happens when it comes to adjusting to what the market is asking you. Also, how to raise money from the right people that are really supporting, you know, the mission of the company, as well as understanding why your company exists which is most important, you know, more important than anything. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Dror Liver. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in Ethiopia, but, uh, you know, then eventually you moved uh, back to Israel. I mean, you, you moved quite a bit, you know, also uh, growing up as a kid. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life, how was life growing up? It was great. So, um... I was very lucky. My dad was in uh, a diplomat, so we moved around uh, a lot. And I, uh, I think one of the biggest gifts that I was given as a kid was um, being exposed to cultures, languages, people from all over the world. As a diplomat, you usually go to school in what's called international schools. So with me, you know, I had people from literally every corner of the world. And it's very good because as a kid, you, you know, you grow up in a little bit of a bubble. And then when you get to see other people, other customs, other cultures, other languages, it really opens up your mind. And I think that that was uh, the greatest gift my parents could have given me. How do you think it, I mean, obviously it opens up your mind, as you've said, in, a, in an amazing way, but there's a couple more things there that are interesting. No, like one is moving from one place to another, starting from scratch, you know, new friends, new everything, new environment. I'm sure that that has helped you to deal with uncertainty. So I guess some of the things that come to mind is, one is, how would you say that moving like that growing up, it really helped you in being with uncertainty? And then also, how do you think it helped you having that worldview, that, that new perspective, because you know there was much more out of Ethiopia or, or out of Israel, for example. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And as you're asking the question, I'm beginning to think that my entire life as an entrepreneur was informed by that, because you're right. As you move around and as you get exposed to different people uh, and as you join different social circles every time uh, anew, um, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. And as an entrepreneur, there is always uncertainty. And maybe living with that uncertainty as a kid, you know, all the way up into my uh, 20s, um, helped me become the, the serial entrepreneur, or as my wife likes to call it, the masochist, uh, going and building companies over and over again and dealing with all of that uncertainty on all aspects, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're living and you need to be at peace with uncertainty because, you know, if you wanted certainty, you would go work for 
a very large organization that has very obvious and clear paths that you need to follow as an entrepreneur, you're creating your own path. So, so in your case, eventually you ended up in the army, uh, and there you also became the CIO of the military police. So talk to us about this experience too, and then also what you got out of being there and perhaps discipline. So like every Israeli, I had to serve in the military. Um, and, um, I decided, uh, that, uh, instead of, uh, getting the orders, I'll give orders. So I went and became an officer, <laughs> not knowing that, of course, you always get orders. Uh, and then um, I grew up in the technology organization and became the CIO of the Israeli military police at a very young age um, and dealt with uh, what were the very first cyber crimes in the history of the country, which was pretty amazing. Um, but what you get out of the military um, is two things more than anything, uh, maybe three things more than anything else. One, as you said, discipline. You know, you have to be disciplined. They drill it into you from basic training through officers' academy. Everything is about discipline. Uh, two, it's all about integrity. So I don't know if you know this, but the number one thing that uh, you flunk out of the uh, academy on is integrity. If they find out that uh, you were dishonest or you lied or or you fib or anything, it's an automatic expulsion. You don't. Uh, um, and and the third thing is uh, teamwork. Nobody is an island in the military. You always rely on other people, uh, and your reliance is in many cases uh, you rely on them with your life. So you learn to work in a team, and you need to. Uh, learn how to rely on people and identify the strengths in other people and rely on those strengths and then fill the weaknesses with either other people that are as uh, stronger in those areas or grow those strengths yourselves. So those three things uh, were pivotal for me. Uh, and and they come at a very formative age. You know, you joined the military when you were 18. I left the military when I was uh, just under 23. Um, so these five years were pivotal in the shaping of my worldview on what work ethic is, what discipline is, what integrity is, and what teamwork is. And also, it sounds like uh, once you finish the army, you know, you were there for about five years, then you experienced, I mean, you had the creative in you, you had the, uh, the bug for wanting to be a musician, but then you yes. realized that, that there was not a lot of cheese at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, exactly. So, so leaving the military, the one thing I really wanted to do was uh, stay as far away from technology as possible because I ate, drank, slept, uh, and dealt with technology every day, all day at extremely high stress uh, levels. So I went and uh, I uh, uh, studied musicology of all things. And then I thought I'd become a uh, professional musician, but very quickly found out that uh, being a musician and having money were mutually exclusive. <laughs> An artist is not exactly and and uh, uh, being in a you know so, so I decided that uh, um, maybe um, that would be a nice thing to have as a hobby, but not as a profession. And I should go back to what I knew how to do, which was leading teams, uh, leading technology teams, uh, and building product. And and that's really what I did. So then, in your case, you know, like uh, you did that. And then eventually you decided to come to the U.S. So what what, what was what was saying the calling, you know, for you to come to the U.S.? 
you know, like a lot of things in our lives, it wasn't planned. You know, uh, I went for a job interview for a job in Israel. Uh, and the guy looked at me and said, look, I'm looking at your resume and you are way overqualified for this job. But we have a head of R&D position in New York uh, that we're recruiting for and you'd be perfect for it. Would you be, would you consider it? And, you know, being a young guy uh, with very little, you know, liabilities, I looked at this and said, hey, you know, why not? And they offered me a two year contract in New York. And uh, I thought it would be a great opportunity to go out and learn and be exposed yet again to uh, something completely new. And that's exactly what uh, I did. I went there to New York for two years and ended up staying 20. That's unbelievable. What do you think kept you for so long in New York? The challenges. Um, it was like constantly uh, a new huge challenge would show up and it, and I'd be just too excited about it to drop it and go back home. So every time I thought it was time and we had uh, my wife and I were um, talking about this constantly. We were, uh, you know, she kept reminding me we came here for two years and um, and uh, she really wanted to come back to Israel. And but every time there would be like this amazing challenge in front of me, an amazing opportunity. I mean, the U.S. really is the land of opportunity. Uh, and it is the highest, I think, um, maybe there are two countries in the world, I think, that have such a high risk-reward profile, Israel and the U.S. Um, and uh, in, the, in New York specifically, it was constantly new challenges, new, new ideas, new opportunities to grasp. And I, I just was so hungry uh, for that, and I felt that I could have such impact. Uh, so one thing led to another, and another company that we founded or another company that asked me to come in and help them scale, and it just kept going. So prior to Coral, which we're going to be talking in just a little bit, how many companies did you either found or run? Six. That's unbelievable. And initially, what got you into the venture world? So when we moved uh, back to Israel, uh, I looked at what do I want to do? Basically, we decided it was time. There was a nice gap uh, in between uh, companies. I had just uh, finished a transaction. Um, and then... Uh, we decided it was a good timing also from, uh, at the time, my daughters were at the right age that we could easily uh, transition uh, between the two places. So when I uh, decided to move to Israel, I thought to myself, what do I want to do? And um, the idea of creating an incubator or a fund came to mind as a really interesting opportunity. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, this is something I've never done before. Uh, so let's go uh, and uh, try that out. So I created the seed fund uh, here in Israel, and we invested in a few companies. Uh, we um, and and some of them were very successful. One ended up getting uh, being sold uh, to Microsoft, and it was a really good experience. But I'm much more of a builder than an investor, so I ended up joining one of our portfolio companies as a CEO. And then uh, after that, after selling that, we, uh, I started Cora with my uh, co-founders. So then let's talk about the experience of uh, running and, and founding all these different companies before Cora and before the Venture Capital Fund. So for the companies that you guys, that you sold, you know, with, with the teams there, what, what did you learn about 
M&A, about acquisitions? You know, how do you go about the whole process of, you know, really getting companies excited to come, you know, start swimming around you so that they end up taking the bite and they end up buying your business? How does that work? It, it all uh, is driven by value. So you need to be able to generate value um, as a company, regardless of M&A or IPO, it's irrelevant. You need to de deliver real value to a real marketplace uh, in order for a company to grow. And as you're doing that, either through very unique technology or through a very unique service or through a very unique approach to a market, um, others that are interested in that technology or market or service or whatever it is that you've created are going to take notice uh, because there are people's uh, people in these large organizations that their entire job is to scout and find companies that are either uh, complementary to what they're offering or uh, can facilitate an entry into um, a new market. So really, it's all about um, fundamental value. You know, if you don't have uh, a real value as an organization, if you're just another Me Too organization that does something, then it's going to be, it's going to limit your uh, exit um, opportunities. And when you exit, it's going to limit greatly the value, the, the transaction size. So there were two companies, too, that uh, you had the opportunity of uh, taking public. One at the peak was $16 billion, The other one was $5.5 Obviously, incredible success, you know, to be able to create a company like that. I guess in terms of patterns that you saw on, on those two companies, which is like the promised land, you know, what every founder, you know, like uh, probably that is listening, you know, wakes up every day and dreams of like ringing the bell and all of that stuff. What were some of the, like the three things perhaps that you saw in common on those two companies that were like rocket ships? Like what were some of those traits that were similar to one another? So, so I can name two that are very, very clear. Innovation, uh, doing something uh, no one has done before, um, and product market fit where you create something that there is a real market for it and the market is growing and therefore it's showing a revenue stream that, is, that has a very uh, large future potential. Remember that uh, in the public market, what uh, the market is really buying is the promise of the future uh, and the fact that you are going to either dominate or be a major player in a market or in a segment that has tremendous growth potential. So in both cases, it was exactly that. It was creating something that was new yet had a very quickly growing potential market that could uh, generate an enormous amount of revenue in the future. So the IPO experience, how was that? Very stressful. Uh, you know, you have to understand that the IPO itself, uh, working up to an IPO, is a very, very tedious process. Uh, it's an enormous amount of due diligence and finance and roadshow and pitching and, and all of that uh, work because normally when you're uh, IPOing, the institutional buyers have already bought into the IPO upfront. Um, so you, the, the entire process of that is um, very tedious, 
very difficult because you're telling the exact same story, sometimes dozens of times each week. And it has to be the exact same story. You can't veer. Yeah, so it's going back to discipline. We spoke about discipline, right? You meet with investment bankers and you meet with institutional investors and you meet with it, uh, with uh, with um, um, pension funds. And, and all you need to do is tell them the story and be very, very clear about the numbers and be very, very clear about the mission and not veer from the message, even though to you, it became the most boring thing on earth because you just told that story 160 times. Uh, over the last month, right? And, and it had to be exactly the same. Post-IPO, it's extremely stressful because now you're a public company and you live quarter to quarter. You have to meet your numbers every quarter. You have to be very careful about how what is communicated, what is not communicated because, uh, you know, as a public company, you have enormous amount of responsibility vis-a-vis uh, -vis the SEC and vis-a-vis -vis your investors and your shareholders and so forth and so on. So it suddenly becomes a totally different ballgame uh, where um, every uh, I must be dotted, every T must be crossed to the nth degree. Uh, and it's, it's a very um, big adjustment mentally from an entrepreneur's perspective where, you know, entrepreneurs are guns blazing. Uh, that's that's our definition. We are we are go getters. We're we're uh, and suddenly you have to be very very focused and very very disciplined on the next quarter's numbers uh, because that's all the public market uh, is looking at. So it's it's a very big shift. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired. You don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case, you know, you also had your successes, but you also had a failure. You know, and as they say, you either succeed or you learn. So from that company that didn't pan out the way that you have hoped for, what was the lesson that you took away from that? Um, there are two lessons. Don't hold on to a uh, dream once you realize, once everybody, once the market is showing you that that dream is 
just not feasible or not correct. And two, don't fall in love with somebody else's vision and not be critical about it. Now, let's talk about 2015. Let's shift gears here. Sure. You know, that's the moment where you got, you know, together with a friend and the idea of Coro starts brewing, you know, really bringing it to life. Walk us through that ideation, incubation, and bringing to life, you know, journey. What was that like with Coro? Yeah. So Coro has been an incredible um, journey. And um, it's it's almost a decade now. And uh, let me tell you, the first uh, years were very, very challenging because, again, figure out, figuring, figuring out that product market fit uh, and audience um, was not easy, especially in our space. Uh, so perhaps I should, I, I should spend two minutes to explain what we do. We are a cybersecurity company, um, and our focus is on the mid-market. And the entire, the entire cybersecurity industry, uh, and there is about 2,700 vendors out there, um, is focused either on the enterprise market or the consumer market. Nobody is focused on the mid-market. So what happens is the enterprise players are trying to shove an enterprise product down the mid-market throat, and the consumer players are trying to shove a consumer product down the SMB throat. Um, and neither is really a fit. So when we sat together as a company, as founders initially, we, like every other cybersecurity company out there, uh, thought that we were building an enterprise product. Um, and then as we started selling that enterprise product into the market, we realized at one point that despite the fact that we were aiming at the enterprise, the folks that were actually buying it were the mid-market. And then when we looked at why were they buying, and we discovered that they were buying our product because it was simpler to use. That was it. We didn't invent a new cybersecurity paradigm. We just took something that was very complex and made it simpler. And then we said, huh, let's, let's think this through because we were really struggling to sell to the enterprise because the market is so saturated with such great companies that have been around for some, some of them 20, 25 years and have built a following and brand awareness. And here's this little, you know, 15 person company out of Tel Aviv trying to sell uh, into these giants and you know it was very very difficult it was a struggle and then we find find out that there is this market out there that is vying for a solution and just simply doesn't have one that is appropriate for them so what we did and and this is going back to ideation and thinking and being courageous is we said you know what even though our the product that we designed and built is appealing to this market it wasn't designed and built for them it it was an accident so we said let's stop everything go back to the drawing board and design a product for them so we went back to the drawing board and built a product that was designed from the ground up for the mid-market which meant, you know, there were there were uh, a few very key issues in that market, 
uh, that we needed to address that nobody else addressed. Uh, simplicity being one of them, price point being another, uh, the reliance on a cybersecurity team, which my customer simply doesn't have a cybersecurity team. It's their IT team. So it's a little bit of a different uh, skill set. Uh, and the concept of having to integrate numerous different products uh, to be able to achieve real cybersecurity uh, competence, all of these things we had to resolve. So we went back to the drawing board, literally stopped selling, built a product that was designed for that market, and then launched it in uh, late 2018, uh, early 2019. And ever since then have grown 300% in revenue year over year, uh, every single year, because we found that product market fit and we created, and our innovation was not in the cybersecurity protection, but in how it's being consumed and how it's being delivered to those, uh, to that specific, and by the way, huge market segment. It's by no means a niche market. There is over 600,000 mid-market and small businesses in the U.S. alone. Uh, so it's, it's a massive market uh, to target. Uh, so that's really what uh, the ideation and the thinking was. You know, understanding that there is a need, going back to the drawing board and having the courage and the backing of your investors to do that, to say, stop everything, rebuild from scratch, and now go to market with the right kind of product. And I guess saying also for building something like this is capital intensive. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, so we raised just south of 180 million. That's a lot of zeros there, drawer. So uh, how, how was the journey of, uh, of going through the different financing cycles? So each funding cycle is dramatically different uh, than other funding cycles. So when you're in the seed funding cycle, you're selling a dream, you're selling a concept, you're selling a team and a PowerPoint and maybe uh, a proof of concept of some sort. But really what you need to sell your investor on, and the numbers, the zeros are very fewer, you know, at that point, uh, you need to sell them on A, a dream, and B, that the team in front of them can actually execute that dream and turn it into a reality. As you're progressing in the cycles, um, you're, uh, talking about, uh, you know, the next round would be more around, uh, a product market fit saying, okay, so now we have a product and it's a real product. Now we need to go to market and you need to trust us that we'll know how to take it to market. It's a great product. Your tech, your being the investors, tech guys can look at it and give us a thumbs up that it's a great product technically, but now we need to take it to market. Totally different storyline totally different dynamic in that investment committee. Uh, and then once you have the product market fit, it's all about execution. Hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, when you can show that you're actually taking that product to market and you're growing 300% year over year consistently and you're meeting uh, your targets 12 quarters in a row, uh, then the conversation is not about a dream but rather about, is this team able to take this to the next level? Is this team able to scale? Is this product going to scale? Is the market big enough to actually generate enough uh, interest and revenue to justify a billion dollar valuation? And that's really where 
you know, each one of the funding cycles was. Uh, luckily for uh, me and, and my co-founders, we, uh, we were able to um, live through each one of those, uh, you know, junctures, uh, you know, the dream juncture, the go-to-market juncture, and of course, the execution juncture uh, very uh, successfully. I have to say that along the way, when we decided to pivot, we had to do a capital raise there. And it took an enormous amount of courage from our investors um, to do that. And it, it, I have to say, you know, the, the team at uh, JVP that was with us from day one um, and is still an investor at Core today, uh, invested in every single round, has been instrumental in our success. Yeah, because, I mean, if you don't have them reinvesting, then that's a negative signal to the market. So I guess, uh, and that could be catastrophic because then your investors are going to be like, hey, they're not reinvesting, something is off with this business, so we shouldn't invest either. So I guess that's an incredible point that you raised there because when things are going well, everyone loves each other. But when things are not going so well, and it will, you get to see the real human being, right? The real people, you know, behind, you know, what, what are the true colors? What have you learned in that regard? Because going through a pivot, and raising money at that time, you really need to know that you have the right people for the right reasons with you. So what did you learn about that during that specific time? That's a great question. Um, to tell you that we knew from the very beginning that our investors would be as courageous as they were, we, we probably did. We probably did because they had an incredible reputation. Um, and they understood our market really, really well, uh, our market at the time being cybersecurity. Um, but I'm not sure that they had the same level of experience in the mid-market. Uh, actually, very few investors have. If you look at the VC community in general, very few have experience in the mid-market. Um, so we were very lucky that they had this courage to look at the market and say, yes, there is a massive market there. Let's go conquer it. Um, and, you know, kudos to um, Yoav Truya and Ariel Margalit, who were uh, investors in us from day one uh, through JVP, who had that courage and now are seeing our success uh, and are sharing our success on a daily basis. So obviously, you know, Vision is a big one. So, you know, that's why you ultimately enroll people in and whether it's employees, investors or customers. So if you were to go to sleep tonight, Dror, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Coro is fully realized, what does that world look like? Every company, regardless of its size, is protected. That will look like a beautiful world. Unfortunately, in today's world, what we're seeing is that the mid-market and smaller organizations are exposed and the bad guys know it and see them as easy prey, uh, easy targets. It's much harder to uh, penetrate a large bank than it is a mid-market credit union. Um, so that's who they're going after now. Uh, last year was the first year where there were more attacks on mid-market and small business than the enterprise, uh, according to the FBI. And I think that's exactly why uh, this is happening, because they are less protected and more vulnerable, but still have assets and still have um, a you know really 
good monetization for the bad guys to go after them. And in a perfect world for me, uh, it would be where every company, regardless of its size, is protected. So obviously we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that moment that you were in New York, now you know about to enter the world of startups. And let's say you were to have a conversation with your younger self and you were to give that younger self one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So, so I would say um, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And by surround yourself, I don't mean just hire people that are smarter than you or partner with people that are smarter than you. It's also surround yourself socially and, and network-wise with people that are smarter than you because you can learn so much from uh, other people. You know, uh, as a tribute, I can I can mention, unfortunately, uh, a dear friend of mine and a mentor of mine who just passed away this year, Gary Rupert. Uh, I've learned so much from this man, and he was so generous with me as far as sharing his knowledge uh, and sharing his point of view, much smarter than me, much more experienced than me. Uh, he, he was, I think, 20, 25 years my senior. And, and having that understanding that you don't know anything, everything, you know some things, but you don't know everything, and you need to surround yourself with people that do know what you don't know so you can learn from them is super important. I hear you. So, Dror, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Probably LinkedIn. I'm very active. Uh, my profile is available on LinkedIn, and they're happy. I'm happy to... Uh, link with people and answer questions and be helpful if I can. Amazing. Well, hey, Dror, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you so much for uh, having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.